The following message from Pastor Kit Johnson comes to you from Life Point Baptist Church in Apple Valley, California, where we pray that God's Word is a real blessing to you. You know, you can turn your Bibles to 1 Corinthians 12. 1 Corinthians chapter 12. It's been encouraging. It was a blessing to hear those testimonies, wasn't it? And uh, see what God's done in people's lives and... and uh, one of the joys of being a pastor is getting a front row seat and seeing God work, and I'm thankful for that. Well, um, like I said earlier, my, my goal is to preach a shorter sermon, and I think I'm going to succeed. Um, that is the plan. I will. Um, I'm time. I'm sort of, I'm a slave. I, I, I care about time, so um, more than most. Uh, so... I thought the next passage in Romans is a little bit more of a complicated passage, so I thought it would be a good time to take a break and revisit our theme for the year on love one another. And, um, and we're going to look today at, at 1 Corinthians 12, verses 25 and 26. But for the sake of context, I'd like to begin reading in verse 22. It says, On the contrary, it is much truer that the members of the body which seem to be weaker are necessary. And those members of the body which we deem less honorable, on these we bestow more abundant honor, and our less presentable members become more presentable. And whereas our more presentable members have no need of it, but God has so composed the body, giving more abundant honor to that member which lacked, so that there be no division in the body, but that the members may have the same care for one another. And if one member suffers, all the members suffer with it. If one member is honored, all the members rejoice with it. Now, throughout the year, we've been emphasizing this command of Jesus in, in John 13 to love one another. And, and this morning, I especially want to challenge us that loving one another demands sharing each other's joys and sorrows. Loving one another demands sharing each other's joys and sorrows. And, uh, and that's, we see that reflected there in verse 26. Again, it says, if one member suffers, all the members suffer with it. If one member is honored, all the members rejoice with it. That, that is a powerful verse. And it's especially significant in the context of 1 Corinthians 12, and particularly Paul's description of the church as a body. So, so look back at what Paul says in verses 12 and 13. He says, For even as the body is one, and yet has many members, all the members of the body, though they are many, are one body, so also is Christ. For by one Spirit we were all baptized into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, whether slaves or free, and we were all made to drink of one Spirit. So, so, so God tells us in that passage that, that when you got saved, if you're a Christian, you were not just, you did not just gain a relationship with Christ. You also gained a relationship with His people. And so we are one body in Christ. Now, of course, uh, Paul's uh, primary referent there in verses 12 and 13 is the universal church. So, so the idea would be fundamentally that, that I am one with every believer in Christ from, from Pentecost until the rapture in every corner of the globe. It really is just an incredible reality to consider. But of course, I can't practically 
obey the commands that are following, and especially the command in our text for today, to, towards every believer who has ever lived, all right? Like, a lot of them are dead. Some of them potentially still are not even born yet. And I can't have a meaningful relationship with someone who lives on the other side of the world, at least not all of them. So, so the place where we practically obey the commands that follow is in the local church. And so these commands, the, the, the challenge of this passage, is directed towards us within the local church. So, so the primary application for us is here within this church. So, so today, we just baptized several people. And in a few minutes, we'll receive them and several others into membership. And, and the idea here is that they will become part of the one body, which is life point. That's a powerful image. And it's a reminder that, that, that this church is not merely an event that we attend. You know, it's not a performance by a few of us up here on the stage that, that you go to like you would a concert or a conference or a basketball game. No. We assemble on Sundays as a body. Romans 12 verse 5 says that we are members one of another. We're all part of the same body. And that fact, I think, just, just adds tremendous weight to the membership vote that we're going to take in a bit. That, that these people are joining themselves to us and we ought to rejoice in God's grace in these people's lives and, and we should give thanks for what God has done and, 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 and really bear in our hearts the sense that we are one and that we are responsible for each other. And, 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 and so verse 25 says that, that as members of the body, specifically, we are required... I guess I forgot. Oops, I'm struggling here. Um, there we go. We are to exercise the same care for one another. That's what he says at the end of verse 25. That's a powerful command, isn't it? You know, the New Testament describes the local church as, or describes the church as a temple, a building, a family, and a body. So, so the church is an interdependent family. So, so therefore, we, we are to enter into each other's blessings, enter into each other's needs. We are to enter into each other's sorrows and joys. And, and God is saying that we should feel the weight of each other's burdens and sorrows as if they were our own. We are to have the same care for each other that we have for ourselves. That's the point of the end of verse 25. I like how D.A. Carson says it. He says, as in a body, the pain of one member is the pain of all. If you smash your finger with a hammer, you may exclaim with equal appropriateness, I hurt my finger. Or, I hurt myself. And the whole body should feel the joys and sorrows of its members, not just a single part. And why is that? Again, it's because we are one body. So, 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 so we are to have this same care for one another that we would have for ourselves. And, and with that in mind, I want to zero in today, uh, first of all, on the first challenge of verse 26, which is that we are to suffer together. Again, Paul says, if one member suffers, all the members suffer with it. Now, now, that is a skill that, frankly, is very lacking in our culture today. You know, we, uh, we live in an increasingly isolated society, and, and so we, we are increasingly, as a culture, losing the ability to relate to people and to minister to people. 
And, and so we don't share the same sense of community obligation that past generations did. Now, for example, I can about guarantee that you go to fewer, fewer funerals than your grandparents did. Because we just don't share that sense of obligation to each other that, that past generations did. And beyond that, there's nothing... Well, well let me add this. You know, uh, uh, we, we don't also know how, how to handle suffering ourselves. And if somebody else is suffering, you know, our, our first impulse as a culture more and more is to send them to a professional to help them through their suffering because we don't know how to help each other work through our challenges. And then as well, another reason we are so, you know, so uh, opposed and stay away from suffering is because we as a culture value happiness so much. We, we want to look good and feel good all the time. And therefore, as a culture, we have less and less room for something like grief, suffering, or sorrow. And when sorrows come, our culture just says, well, drown it in alcohol, drugs. Just do stuff to have fun and, and to distract yourself from the pain. Go to work. We, we want to avoid all of these sorts of things. And, and sadly, the church oftentimes is not much better. And I want to read a, a rather lengthy quote from Carl Truman. And, and I'll just tell you up front that, that he is primarily thinking about worship in the church but especially the last part of what he has to say is, is really powerful and really thought-provoking for our subject today. And so, Carl Truman says, and hopefully you can read that. If not, just listen along. He says, The Psalms, the Bible's own hymn book, have almost entirely dropped from view in the contemporary Western evangelical scene. I have an instinctive feel that it has more than a little to do with the fact that a high proportion of Psalms are taken up with lamentation with feeling sad, unhappy, tormented, and broken. In modern Western culture, these are simply not emotions which have much credibility. Sure, people still feel these things, but to admit that they are a normal part of, everyone's, of one's everyday life is tantamount to admitting that one has failed in today's health, wealth, and happiness society. Perhaps, we have drunk so deeply at the well of modern Western materialism that we simply do not know what to do with such cries and regard them as little short of embarrassing. A diet of unremittingly jolly hymns inevitably creates an unrealistic horizon of expectation which sees the normative Christian life as one long triumphalist street party, a theologically incorrect and pastorally disastrous scenario in a world of broken individuals. And by excluding cries of loneliness, dispossession, and desolation from its worship, the church has effectively silenced and excluded the voices of those who are themselves lonely, dispossessed, and desolate, both inside and outside the church. It has implicitly endorsed the banal aspirations of consumerism and generated an insipid, trivial, and unrealistic, triumphalist Christianity. In the last year, I've asked three very different evangelical audiences what miserable Christians can sing in church. And on each, on each occasion, my question has elicited uproarious laughter, as if the idea of a broken-hearted, lonely, or despairing Christian was so absurd as to be comical. There's a lot there to, to digest. And again, he is primarily concerned with, with how churches worship God and, and how trite and trivial so often church worship can be. 
But, but his words apply to, to all of our life as Christians, and especially to our life as a church. And I want to emphasize that as servants of a sovereign, good, and wise God, we don't need to run from, 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 from sorrow. We don't need to be slaves of temporal happiness. No, instead, we can learn to face it. And from there, not only do we need to learn to face our own challenges, but we need to learn how to practice what verse 26 says and learn how to suffer together and to bear each other's sorrows. Along similar lines, Romans 12 verse 15 says, it commands us to rejoice with those who rejoice and to weep with those who weep. And I think it's worth emphasizing that Paul wasn't spitting fluff when he said that. No, he exemplified it. I love what he says in 2 Corinthians 11, verses 27-29. He says of his ministry, he says, I have been in labor and hardship through many sleepless nights, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure. Apart from such external things, there is the daily pressure on me of concern for all the churches. Who is weak without my being weak? Who is led into sin without my intense concern? Yeah, it's so heavy. And I, and I can say for myself that, that I used to think that, that I needed to somehow, if I, if, I, if I felt the pains and sorrows and the burdens of ministry, that, that I was doing something wrong. And, and, and Paul didn't do that. I mean, he felt the sorrows, the burdens, the failures of the people around him. Now, Paul didn't spend his life trying to insulate himself from the burdens of ministry and the burdens of life with other sinners. He didn't prioritize self-care. He prioritized love. And he cared deeply about people, and he felt every victory, and he felt every defeat. So, so for example, you know, when you get a virus... It typically only attacks a small portion of your body. You get, a, you get a cold, it just attacks your respiratory system. But, but you don't just feel it in your respiratory system, right? You, you feel it everywhere. You're, you're lethargic, your, your body aches, it, it hits your whole body even though it's actually only in a part of the body. And in the same way, what Paul is teaching in these passages is that the church should function the same way. When there is a sorrow in the midst of the body, it doesn't just affect that one little part of the body. We all feel it. We all hurt with that individual. But of course, I want to emphasize that the point is not simply to make us all sad and gloomy, right? No. We we share each other's sorrows ultimately to spread the load and, and to prevent any one person from being crushed by the weight of his or her burden. So so the fact then is, well, well how do we do that well? How can we as a church be better at caring for those who are suffering? And I'd like, and there are all sorts of directions I could go here, but, but I just want to mention five practical tips to help us minister to those who are suffering. And so the first one is break the ice by acknowledging the pain. And this is one that, that was really helpful to me when I first came across. I did, I did a three-week uh, Sunday night series of three years ago, so ago now, now uh, on grieving and how to minister to grieving people. And this one was really helpful to me because, because there's been many times where someone is grieving and I've struggled to know what to say. You know, I want to say the perfect thing that's going to fix their problems. Or, or sometimes I've thought, well, you know, maybe if I don't bring it, you know, maybe they forgot about it. 
And, and so if I don't bring it up, I, I won't pick a scab that, that's already beginning to heal over. And so I, I didn't get this quote on the screen, but I, this quote from Nancy Guthrie was very helpful to me. And, and she's specifically talking about ministering to people who have lost a loved one, but, but it applies to many scenarios. She says, when someone you love has died, it is, if, it is as if a hurdle has been placed between you and every person you know. And that hurdle stays in place until your loss has been acknowledged in some way. It doesn't have to be a grand gesture or a long conversation. It doesn't matter if it's been a while since the loved one died. It doesn't have to be anything brilliant. Sometimes a simple, I know what has happened and I'm so sorry. Or even a nonverbal hand on the shoulder or a squeeze of the hand will knock down that barrier. It's really simple, but I think it's really practical and really valuable. That, that we need to be intentional about acknowledging the pain so that we can then restore strong, healthy ministry. And then a second, uh, just practical help, is focus on listening rather than on fixing. You know, and again, be, because we live in a culture where we are so uncomfortable with sorrow and sadness, you know, our general response, when, when someone is sad or hurting in front of us, our, our impulsive response is that we want to fix it. We want to get rid of all that sadness and tears and all that, all that horrible stuff. And, and so, so, so we want to say the perfect thing that's going to make it go away. You know, sometimes we try and crack a joke and enlighten the mood in a way that really isn't helpful. Or, or what's really bad is, is when someone you know, laments something going on in their life and, and we think we're going to help them by telling us that actually we have it a whole lot worse than they do. And so we, we belittle their issue by focusing attention on ourselves. And Job's friends didn't get a whole lot right. But they did get it right in Job 2.13. After a Job lost everything, it says, so they sat down with him on the ground and seven days and seven nights, and no one spoke a word to him, for they saw that his grief was very great. Now, now it is true that at some point, we, we have to address bad theology or, or sinful responses to things. And so there is a time to, to correct and confront and to challenge. But, but this advice is important that we start by entering the person's sorrows and sympathizing with them. And think another really practical, helpful thing is that we need to emphasize God's virtues and be careful about explaining His ways. You know, again, because we're fixers, we often feel the need to justify God's ways by claiming to know exactly what he's doing in someone's trial. And of course, we can speculate at times, and I think we can justly speculate at times about what God might be doing in someone's life through a particular trial. But be really careful about throwing out things like, you know, God needed another angel in the sky. You know, it's trite. And frankly, it's not true. And oftentimes, you know, with just other things that we try and say that we think are going to fix people's grief, you know, we're, we're speculating, we're, we're speaking for God when we don't actually have the authority to know what He's doing. And particularly what, what is so often troubling is when we, we claim to know that God is judging some sin or He is chastising to fix some issue when we don't actually know that's the case. So, so instead... We need to focus on just anchoring people's minds in basic, concrete truths about God. You know, God is sovereign. God is wise. God is good. God is near to you in your sorrow. 
God is faithful to his promises. You know, and, and, and God has proven his love in the cross. And, and those things, folks, are, are so much more helpful. And, and frankly, the Psalms confirm that that's where our focus should be because you see all these Psalms that, that talk about sorrows and pains and cries for help to God, and, and the psalmist continually goes back to who God is and what God has promised. That's where he anchors his soul. And so we need to do the same for each other. And then another one is pray together. Now, now that might seem so obvious that it doesn't need to be mentioned, and yet very often we don't do it. You know, but the reality is, I don't think I've ever had someone say no when I have asked if I can pray with them after they shared some burden. And generally speaking, people are very grateful and very encouraged by just bowing and praying to God together. And it anchors people's minds in the truth of God. And it encourages them. It shows love to them in a meaningful, significant way. And of course, God answers prayer. So we ought to pray together about things. And then another one is commit to long-term ministry. You know, we, we tend to be okay at confronting initial crisis. You know, something bad happens and everyone jumps you know, up and, and gets to work to, to fix the problem that's going on. But we aren't always so good at seeing suffering and grief and trials to the very end. And oftentimes the hardest part of grief or the hardest part of a huge trial is after the attention dies down and someone is struck with the reality that their life is forever different or is going to be different for a very long time. And so we need to be intentional about compensating for that. You know, maybe put into your calendar significant anniversaries or dates that are going to be meaningful to this other person and reach out on those dates. You know, do other things to, to build an intentional plan so that you don't forget how someone is suffering and you continue to minister for a long time. So, so folks, what we're talking about here is just so important. Because I believe there is no organization on earth with more potential to sustain people through suffering than the local church. And we can give to each other a ministry that you know, maybe extended family can give. But, you know, I mean, part of the reason we have, we have so many professionals and so many people who've, who, who deal with grief, you know, like, like we've created a whole industry to do what the church used to do for people. And we have more potential, more power to help people than anyone else can. So, so if you are hurting, I would encourage you to put yourself in the way of the ministry of the church. Now, don't sit at home and gripe that no one is ministering to you. Jump into people's lives. Love them. Serve them. Get involved with them. And, and as you do that, you will receive ministry. People will hear, they will respond, they will care for you. And then let's all as a church commit that, that we will be aware of, of people's burdens and sorrows and that we will share the load with them. So, so we must suffer together. And then as well, verse 26 challenges us about the fact that we must rejoice together. So verse 26b says, if one member is honored, all the members rejoice with it. Now, now, we might read that verse and initially think, well, well, who has a problem with that? Who doesn't want to rejoice with other people? But the reality is, is I, there are two huge threats to us actually living out this verse. And the first threat to us doing so is the danger of self-absorption. You know, we are, and this one also applies to suffering well together. 
That, that very often we are very skilled as Americans in making our lives insanely busy with all sorts of stuff. And it's good to be busy, right? It's good to enjoy the blessings of God. But, but it is a problem when we fill our minds, we fill our lives with so much stuff, so many things, that there's little room left in our hearts for big affections for God and genuine love for each other. And sadly, so often we are so busy and we are so consumed with ourselves. We are so distracted with so many things that we don't even notice people's joys or sorrows. Or, or we're just so wrapped up in what we're doing and what's going on this afternoon and where we got to get tomorrow that there's no time left to really minister and care and, and look out for each other. And, and it hurts people. And, and it shuts the door to lots of future ministry. You know, when, when we are so wrapped up with ourselves that we cannot take time to share someone's joy over some good thing that God did in their life. And so, and so we need to guard ourselves very carefully against being so absorbed with ourselves, so absorbed with the things that we care about, that we don't have time to rejoice with each other. I think another huge cha- danger here is the danger of envy. You know, sometimes we'll rhetorically ask, who doesn't love a wedding? And the answer is, Someone who desperately wants to be married and can't find someone to marry them. And um, you know, for Heidi and I, the danger of envy really hit home during the early years of our marriage when we were struggling with infertility. You know, so it seemed like we'd go to church every week and you know, it seemed like every Sunday someone was announcing that they're having a baby, right? And so I had, we had to learn to intentionally practice rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. Because it's so easy when you hear about other people's joys to just immediately turn your attention to yourself and to wish that you had what that other person has. And I don't think that we're alone in that. We're we're all tempted to envy other people's blessings and and instead of rejoicing in them. And, and, And social media has exasperated that problem. Because so much of what happens in social media is social media is a place that people use to, to, to boast in all the great things they have. You know, people don't put up pictures of, you know, like their big zit, right? They, they put the best picture of themselves up possible. You know, and, and so we boast about our new car, our new job, you know, our beautiful vacation and all the other, other wonderful things that we have. And, and oftentimes we see those things in our in our natural response is not to rejoice with them it's to envy to wish we had what they had you know it's a scientific fact that instagram is destroying how so many teenage girls view themselves because they spend all their time looking at all these doctored beautiful pictures of other girls and instead of rejoicing in them it just shines a magnifying glass on every imperfection they see in themselves And it's killing their sense of security and confidence. And hopefully as adults, you're better than that, but but so often we're we're not a whole lot better. You you see everything that's good that's happening in other people's lives, and and all it does is, is you turn it back on yourself. And with a selfish heart, you envy what they have, you get angry at what they have, and you do not rejoice with them. So so how can we intentionally choose rejoicing instead of self-absorption and envy? 
And, and let me just mention a couple things. And I, well, I guess I missed one of them. I forgot to get it in the slide. But the first one is cultivate selfless love. So, so verse 25b has to drive verse 26. We have to have the same care for one another. So, so when I love other people with the same care that I have for myself, then I will weep with those who weep, and I will rejoice with those who rejoice. So cultivate a selfless love. And then secondly, choose your focus. The reality is, is you will love the things that you meditate on and the things that you invest in. And so if you meditate on God and you pursue God, you will love God. And if you love people and you are focused on serving them and you invest yourself in people, you will love people. And if you meditate on yourself, You spend all your time thinking about your image and your passions and your desires. And you invest yourself in chasing the things that you want. Then you will be absorbed with yourself. And you will not have the capacity to love other people well. So where is your focus? Are you investing in yourself? Or are you investing in other people? Do you see people's people's joys and rejoice with them? And if you're going to live verse 26, you must intentionally choose your focus and your passion because it's not going to happen accidentally. If you just let it go where it goes, it's always going to go here. And then a third one is choose your steps. You know, sometimes it almost hurts to rejoice with someone, right? It feels unnatural and even painful. And I would encourage you that even when you don't want to rejoice with someone, to make the choice to do it anyway. So make the choice to go hold your friend's baby and rejoice with them even though you wish it was yours. Go to that wedding and have a blast and rejoice with your friend even though you wish it was your wedding. Say, I'm happy for you when someone is glad even if you don't feel it inside. And that's not hypocritical. It's not hypocritical to do the right thing because you want to do the right thing even when you don't feel like doing the right thing. It is is right to push ourselves in the direction that we know is good because we want to honor the Lord. And when you make that choice and you keep making that choice, the right emotions will, will generally follow, almost for sure. Folks, the goal is that we would have the same care for one another. So choose to obey verse 26. And I believe that God will graciously build the love that you desire for yourself. And then lastly, steward your blessings well. And uh, 1 Timothy chapter 4, verses 4 and 5 say of the joys of life, everything created by God is good and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with gratitude. For it is sanctified by means of the word of God and prayer. So so that verse gives you permission, and in fact, it commands you to enjoy the good things that God gives, but to do so with a thankfulness to God, glorifying Him for what He has done. So, So remember, as you enjoy the blessings of God, that you don't deserve them, that that every good thing you have is a grace of God. So, So make an intentional choice when you speak of God's blessings to give glory to God for what God has done. Now, I've tried to be much more intentional about this recently because 
of the, the envy that I see in my own heart. That if I'm going to talk about something good I've enjoyed or some blessing I have, that I want to intentionally give glory to God for every good thing I have. And, and because when I do that, it, it honors the Lord, right? It, it honors God, it pleases God, but, but it also ministers well to the people around me. And it reminds them that I'm not boasting in myself, I'm boasting in God. And I am thankful for Him doing for me what I could never do for myself. And so, be intentional about glorifying God and consider those who might be tempted to envy your blessing. And be intentional about how you minister to them and encourage them even as you enjoy the good blessings of God. So, so folks, loving one another demands that we share each other's joys and sorrows. And it's a wonderful testimony of love, and it's a wonderful, wonderful grace to each other. So, so by God's grace, let's do this well, so, so that God will be honored, and so that we will care well for the other members of this church. Let's pray. God, thank you so much for your grace and kindness towards us, and that, Lord, you are good, and you only do what is good. And so help us to be thankful Help us to glorify you for every blessing. And Lord, help us as well to glorify you for the blessings of others. And help us, God, to be good as well. Help us to be good ministers who serve each other in times of blessing and in times of disappointment. And Lord, I pray that we would help each other onto Christ, encourage each other every step of the way, and express love and care and ministry that will sustain us all and keep us all. In Christ's name, amen.